0: Well, we come to the end of the very short series that I attempted to uh, take with you um, around the conflict between Elijah and Ahab, and it's quite a long passage, and I promise that I won't follow it all in great detail, otherwise it would be a very late evening. But there are some great things um, to learn and be instructed in from this passage. So the first thing is that uh, for three years now, the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes have been in desperate straits. People have literally been starving to death. Um, I'm old enough to remember when when they first televised the Biafran uh, famine, and it was a real shock to the UK to see so many young children with distended stomachs and people in in abject poverty and desperate states. And that reality was Israel's reality. Their disobedience against God had brought on them the covenant curses and the consequences were awful to behold. But in judgment, the Lord remembers mercy. Praise God that he is a merciful father. And so after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. God's judgments are serious. We'll see that right at the end. But they are for a purpose, and they are to bring the people to repentance. And so three years has passed, and now the Lord moves in mercy to deal with his people. So he sends Elijah to go and see Ahab, what I'd view is that at a human level, that looked like a suicide trip. Ahab, as we read, has been searching the nations all around, making them promise on oath that they don't know where Elijah is. For Ahab, the burr under his saddle or the thorn in his foot is this man Elijah who is ruining his intentions for the good of Israel. And so it's like that as soon as Ahab sees Elijah, he will order his death. But as we read, that isn't what happened. Let us think just for a moment about this man Obadiah. Um, really interesting. Uh, and someone very kindly mentioned that I work with Sazra, and in my duties with Sazra, I end up working alongside um, authorities that, to be honest, I'd much rather not work alongside. authorities who wish to encourage various changes around human sexuality and so on that I think we as Christians find very difficult because we know it won't lead to flourishing but rather it will lead to profound unhappiness and and the opposite of flourishing. People who don't believe what I do even though they are ministers of religion and so-called and often I just feel it's a very unpleasant and difficult environment and Others of you will find yourselves in a similar position. I think probably all of you to some degree find yourself in a similar position. But for those who are really on the cutting edge of being in amongst the world and being surrounded by people who really want to move things away from God's law and the scriptures and yet employ you or are colleagues of yours in what you do, how should you react? What should your interaction with them be? And within Christianity, historically, there have been two great dangers, haven't there? One is simply to go along with everything, just to comply. And we see that, sadly, don't we, in areas of the church today. People of the same sex want to marry, that's fine, we'll change things so that they can marry in church. In direct contravention of all that scripture teaches so there's the comply end, which is a danger. But then at the other end, there's the separatist danger, which is we'll have nothing to do with the world. We'll hide, effectively. We'll have our own enclave. So you end up with monasticism or the exclusive brethren um, or other denominational groupings who just distance themselves from everything and don't engage. And Obadiah, or Obadiah, I am a servant of God. The name his parents gave him. It's a really fascinating study. Here's a man who is actually working to support the administration of Ahab, the most depraved and godless king that Israel has seen in its seven kings to date. Here is a godly man who fears the Lord and who's prepared to take very significant personal risks to defend fellow believers, and yet he still works in the court of this godless, abhorrent king. And we think of others, don't we? We think of of Naaman. Um, Naaman, when he's healed... He says, "Look, I, I, I serve as commander of the army of this godless heathen nation. Um, can I take some earth back with me so that when I worship in the temple of our God, at least I can worship on holy ground, as it were? Think of Daniel, Daniel faced with so many difficult, conflicting requirements what to eat, who to too, what wisdom to absorb, what to reject." yet remarkably has this powerful, powerful ministry. Esther, queen to a a godless king and then all the machinations around the destruction of the nation. And uh, for such a time of this, Esther is in place. So what I would say is the first thing is I think you and I need to be really slow to judge. You might have some very strong views about politics or the ecology of the world and so on and your view might be that any christian who's involved in any of that has really stepped beyond the pale and they need to be you know taken out and and corrected i'm not allowed to say shot anymore am i but anyway we need to be slow to judge don't we because if we looked at this man obadiah and gone yeah what on earth is a believer doing serving such an evil wretched king he's got it badly wrong then we would be ignoring God's providence that here was a man right at the heart of an evil government who was both protecting prophets and who is going to be a linchpin in what happens in the arrangements now. So I just think it's right that we have a degree of humility. I, I do not know all that the Lord is doing. And if I were to suggest to you I did. that would be completely laughable, wouldn't it? No, I don't know. And so I recognize that there would be believers in very difficult positions, in all kinds of enterprises and authorities and so on, who are seeking to live their lives to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ in very difficult circumstances. I think rather than criticize, it would be good if we prayed for them. Now, Obadiah has a real challenge, doesn't he? Because Elijah says, go and tell Ahab I'm here. And he says, that will be a suicide mission. Because as soon as I get to Ahab and say you're here, the spirit of the Lord will whisk you away and I'll be put to death. But uh, Elijah reassures him and Obadiah goes and he fetches Ahab. And I think it's really interesting to see how the power gradient changes here. Ahab is the king. Elijah is a relatively, almost completely unknown individual who is merely a prophet. And yes, it's Ahab who is summonsed to Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And in the original, the word could be translated, you hexer. You've brought some kind of occultish curse on the people. Now, it's very easy for us, isn't it, to, to come to Scripture, and I don't mean this rudely, but with a kind of Sunday school approach and not really reflect on some of the things that are really going on here. Ahab had huge responsibilities for the well-being of a multitude of people, the ten northern tribes. And actually, his program, from many respects, was quite impressive. He built up the army. He restored the defenses around the nation. He coped with all the machinations of superpowers going on around him. Shalmaneser III has just overrun Syria to the north of Israel. It's a huge threatening block north of them. And he's trying to prepare the nation so that they could withstand an assault which is inevitably coming. And it will in due course, but not yet. He's married into the Sidonians, which gives Israel access to ports and trade, which means that economically Israel is having a good time. And he's managed his religious affairs so that he's introduced a level of of syncretism that means that people have quite a lot of religious freedom. As long as you're not too enthusiastic about Yahweh, that is, then you're pretty much free to do what you want. And then it all goes horribly wrong because this unknown man appears before him and says, unless I say so... There's going to be famine and drought for three years. And suddenly the nation is precipitated into a political and economic crisis. And so when Ahab points to Elijah and goes, you're the hexer of Israel, at one level, at one level, we should understand that that accusation appeared to carry a huge amount of weight it did look like Elijah had stuck a huge spoke into the economic wheels of the country and plunged the nation into a desperate situation where they could no longer even field a military force of significance. There was a coalition of kings that had come together to try and withstand what was happening with Shalmaneser III and Israel's contribution was 3,000 chariots if you've got 3,000 chariots, you need 6,000 horses. And that's why Ahab is out desperately seeking fodder for the horses. If he can't find things to feed the horses, he can't field the chariots. If he can't field the chariots, he's failing in his contract, his commitment to this alliance of kings to defend their territory. So from a human perspective his unhappinesses and accusations seem entirely legitimate. But the problem, of course, is that he's only looking at it from the point of view of politics and economics. Elijah's response, he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. That's the absolute crux of what's going on. And it was the crux for them then, and it's the crux for us now. Every moment of every day, you and I are faced with decisions. And adulting is hard, isn't it? Adulting is hard because you've got to make decisions constantly about a whole range of things. When you're a child, most of the significant decisions are made for you. Once you become an adult, it's just one decision after another. And it becomes very wearing, doesn't it? The question is, on what basis do we decide how we're going to behave and what priorities we're going to set? Are you setting your priorities on the basis of an economic outlook. Are you principally concerned about income, status, pension? The church can be very good at that, can't it? It's really interesting, isn't it? You can turn up to church in a car and be immediately judged. Maybe not in London. You all turn up by foot or bicycle. But elsewhere, you turn up in your car, and if you drive a very expensive car, people go, ooh, yeah, that's not very spiritual. But you can live in a mansion, and that's absolutely fine. It doesn't matter that you've got a splendid house. And so, you know, we need to examine ourselves, don't we? Ahab, it appeared entirely reasonable to him what he was saying. And you and I, we can justify ourselves so easily and so comprehensively. Of course I must have a job that pays this amount. Of course I must make this provision for my future. Of course I mustn't risk things. And the risk is that just like Ahab, we will turn away from God's commands. God's commands that we give to him first. God's commands that we are to cherish the widow and the fatherless, the weak. I assure you I speak to my own heart as much as anybody else is here this evening. It might be political. It might be ecological. It might be whatever the thing you get excited about. Just think for a moment. You have an opportunity to meet somebody for the first time. What do you want to talk to them about? I was in a church quite recently to witness baptisms, and it was a lovely evening and great rejoicing. And then after the service, one of the members of the church came up and pinned me to the wall because he was determined that I should understand his views on COVID restrictions. Now, I'm not going to talk to anybody this evening about views on COVID restrictions, But what is it that you would pin somebody against the wall to talk to them about? So I'm asking you, what's your heart, at the root of your heart, what is it that excites you? For Elijah, it was Yahweh. He was earnest in serving and honoring the living God. Ahab had plans for the nation. What excited him was his military prowess, the economic prosperity, his marriage into the Phoenician Empire. Those are all the things that he'd want to talk to you about. So, brother and sister, what is it you want to talk about? The Lord help us that it's not things that will pass, but rather the things that are eternal. Elijah responds to Ahab's challenge that he's the hexer, and he says, no, the problem's with you. And he quickly cuts to the chase. Send and gather to me, verse 19, all Israel at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is the great champion of the Baal-Asherah religious Um, following, and she has 400 of these prophets that she's brought with her into the marriage, but additionally there are these 450 prophets of Baal. And amazingly, Ahab does as directed. At one level, he obviously has deep respect for Elijah. Possibly he felt that this would solve the problem once and for all, that this troubler of Israel he could deal with by having him publicly fail and humiliated. But for whatever motive, verse 20, he sends to all the people of Israel and gathers the prophets, although in the end it's only the prophets of Baal, um, at Mount Carmel. Now Elijah has a very interesting interaction with the people. It's quite an aggressive challenge. How long, verse 21, will you go limping between two different opinions? Um, If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. It's very simple, isn't it? Who will you follow? Will you follow the living God? Or will you follow this alternative? And you see how the people respond? Silence. Silence. They don't want to go there. By and large, they're pretty happy with the way things are. We don't want any extremes in our religious faith. And actually, given that we're largely an agrarian economy, in a land that's dependent on rain because there are no significant rivers, um, Baal scratches where we itch because Baal is the god of rain, fertility, fire. The little statues that they found of Baal in his hands he has lightning forks he was the god of fire as well as rain and fertility so you're asking quite a lot of us elijah you want us to turn our back on something that seems good to us and you want us to be quite extreme about our religious views in our thinking Um, we don't want to commit of course there's more to it than that the royal family not quite like our royal family where it's very constitutional and the queen's powers are extremely limited. This was a sovereign king whose will rule the nation. And if you choose to discredit Baal and Asherah and honor Yahweh, you're flying in the face of the prevailing political winds. It's a little bit like us, I think, in the way that we understand God's teaching on marriage and human sexuality. It's often better that we don't make too much noise about it because in the public space, we will just be vilified and canceled. Bit like that then, you're asking me to turn my back on Baal. I will be vilified and canceled. I might even be put to death. The people are silent. But then Elijah suggests a challenge. There's me on my own, verse 22, and 450 prophets of Baal. And then he sets up this confrontation. Bulls, wood, no fire. And he suggests this is how we decide it, verse 24. You call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And how do the people respond? Ah, this is getting interesting. We like this. Bit of a public confrontation. Ah, our ears are tingling and our eyes are itching to see what's going to happen. The people answered, it is well spoken. What a thin lot. But anyway... They've agreed to the terms of the contest, so Elijah then instructs the prophets of Baal what they should do, and they crack on. Verse 26, they took the bull that was given them and they prepare it, and they call upon the name of Baal. Now, Mount Carmel is actually a a series of, of mountain peaks about 30 miles long that stretch inland from the Mediterranean Sea. And it's not entirely certain which one is the Mount Carmel that's spoken of here, although they suggest that there's a particular one. Um, Usually, altars to gods were at the foot of the mountains, not at the peak. And so there's this broken down um, Israelite altar there. Broken down because Mount Carmel borders the Sidonian Phoenician uh, lands, and as a consequence, the influence of Baal had leaked over, and this now Mount Carmel had become a center for Baal worship. so almost certainly it wasn 't just a dilapidated altar, but it was a vandalized altar. The uh, worshippers of Baal destroyed as it were the lord 's altar so Elijah conceded to uh, the prophets of Baal, first of all, primacy, they go first. Secondly, they get the choice of bull. And uh, so away they go. Now again, we need to be careful how we read this because the Ugaritic texts tell us quite a bit about how they viewed their gods. And they did consider that Baal had quite human characteristics so for example he did need to go to the toilet, he did need to sleep, he did go on journeys, and he all the things that in due course um, Elijah will provoke them with, they were actually they weren't unreasonable. It wasn't though he was saying daft things about Baal. He was saying to them, Yeah, he's not listening to you, you really need to crack on because he could be doing any of the things that you say he does. And so they start about nine in the morning, and I imagine it was quite exciting at the beginning. People are going, wow, this is going to be great. Really looking forward to seeing what happens here. And then it goes on and on, not unlike my sermon. And by this point, people are going, oh, really? Isn't anything going to happen? Midday arrives, and it's three hours now. They've been watching the prophets of Baal achieve nothing. And at this point, Elijah starts to rib them. And so they start to cut themselves. Now, in in the religion of Baal, their belief was that during the dry season, Baal died. And he had to be revived. He had a battle with a god called Mott at the beginning of the dry season. And Mott killed him. And then Baal was resurrected at the end. And when he was resurrected, that's when the rains came. And this business about cutting yourself and bleeding profusely was supposed to show some kind of feeling with Baal around his death at the hands of Mott. So that's why they're cutting themselves. They're doing everything in their power to persuade Baal that he should hear them and act. After all, he is the god of fire. So surely he can hear the cries of his people. But it goes on and on. And they're, they're semi-delirious by this stage. Blood loss, heat, hours of prancing around in a frenzy. And in the end, Elijah calls an end to it. And he calls the people in. Come closer. It's what ministers say to congregations, and nobody ever moves. Why are you all at the back? Come nearer. Elijah calls the people in. Verse 30 people come near him he repairs the altar of the lord that had been thrown down and then elijah takes 12 stones that's a rebuke to uh, ahab ahab was ruling the 10 northern schismatic tribes here's elijah reminding them that the people of israel are one 12 tribes and he builds the altar and he makes a trench two sears, um, not a huge amount, but nevertheless a a trench around. And he puts the wood in order and he cuts the bull and he puts all in place. And then he says something really weird. He says to the people, right, I need your help. Fill four jars with water and pour it all over the altar. Now, remember, this is an altar which is supposed to contain a burnt offering. And you'll appreciate that drenching it is not going to help his cause. And this really does look like shooting yourself in the foot. But nevertheless, the people go, oh, okay, so they go and get four jars. Because it's at the base of Mount Carmel, almost certainly, it's possible that this is seawater from the Med, or there might have been a spring, we don't know, but they find this water and they pour it on. He says, do it again. And then do it again. Four threes are 12. So again, we've got the symbolism of the entire nation. And then... And once upon a time, I knew quite how many words there are in the Hebrew in this prayer. It's not many. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, And that you have turned their hearts back. How long did that take me? Is that about 30 seconds? The prophets of Baal had spent six hours. Elijah spends less than a minute. God answers. Let me suggest to you there's got to be a profound challenge to you and I there. If it was true... That for us to be heard in our prayers by the Lord, we had to take six hours of horrendous effort that ended with self-damage. It would be a terrible thing. But extraordinarily, the Lord's ear is open to hear the cry of his people. Don't you feel rebuked that these worshippers of a pretend God are prepared to go to that length to attempt to be heard? But you and I have instant access to the throne of the living God through Jesus Christ. And yet, if your heart is anything like mine, I'm so reluctant to go. Brothers and sisters, for most of us, I guess, our prayer lives are a shame. The Lord delights to hear the cries of his people. Can I challenge you when you go home this evening, before you retire, pray. Tomorrow morning, when you wake Before you, breakfast or whatever else you do on a Monday morning, pray. Remember how they knew that Saul of Tarsus was a believer. The Lord said, he prays, he prays. My friend, what's your prayer life like? We have no excuse, do we? 30 seconds. And God answers. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Seems like a glorious moment. What a wonderful triumph and it is fantastic isn't it it's fantastic here is God answering the cry of his servant his servant acting in obedience to all that the Lord required and there's this hugely public demonstration of the power and authority of Yahweh but here's a question for you why fire What did the people really need? What was the problem in the nation? For three years, there's been no rain. What the people need is rain. Why didn't Elijah set up the competition to be the God who answers by rain? He is God. Wouldn't that have made much more sense? Wouldn't that have really met the people's needs? No, because actually the people's most profound need was not rain. The people's most profound need was forgiveness of sin. The reason they had no rain was sin. And so what they needed was God's forgiveness. Did you pick up the parallels here with the Offering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was the lamb to be slain as a sin offering. And here is a bull slain to be a sin offering. The bull is to be offered on wood. The Lord Jesus Christ was to be crucified on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ would give up his life at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. When did the fire fall here? The time of the evening oblation, the ninth hour. God's judgment fell. Isn't it extraordinary here that Elijah called the people in? They were close to the action. When the fire fell, not a hair on a head was singed. Remarkable. You would think that God's judgment would have fallen on the people for their sin and rebellion. And as the Lord Jesus Christ dies, the centurion standing looking in his face says, truly this man was the son of God. All the people here throw themselves on their faces and proclaim the Lord, He is God. What the people need first and fundamentally is their sins forgiven. And so God accepts a burnt offering to take away sin. And it's just a picture for us of the extraordinary and amazing work that Jesus Christ did at the cross, where he was the offering who took away the sin of the world. Praise God, praise God, that the Lord Jesus was willing and ready to come to fulfill this type. It's extraordinary. It's profound. And if you and I think that our greatest need is political or economic or ecological, God have mercy on us because our greatest need is that our sins are forgiven and we have peace with the living God. The application of that is just straight, isn't it? Have you come to a position where you recognize that amongst all the felt needs that you have, your most profound requirement Is peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ the offering for sin? If not now, now is the day. Now is the time. Like these people here, metaphorically or physically, bow before the Lord and proclaim him, living God. And then finally, and very briefly, it would be nice to stop there, but it wouldn't be faithful to the passage. As soon as that's happened, and Elijah's authority as God's prophet is so roundly endorsed by heaven, in just the same way that the authority of Jesus Christ was so roundly endorsed by his father's witness from heaven, Elijah tells them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, They seized them and they brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And you might say to me, Andrew, that's just a horrible bit of Old Testament brutality. How can it be right that these leaders of another religion should be taken away and slaughtered? Surely we want toleration and so on. And at one level, we are not um, living under a theocracy. We live in the United Kingdom under a democracy, and so it's quite right that we don't go around killing people that we don't agree with. But that's not the point here. The point here is that there was a false testimony against God's truth being promulgated under authority in God's nation. And God would not have it. These men must die. And whatever else you make of that, I think the point that you and I must feel most poignantly is that the Lord, the living God, is not indifferent to what you believe or how you behave. These men faced a sudden, savage judgment. And although there is much about the Christian faith that is gracious and kind and gentle, It is also the case that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again a second time to judge. And when people see the Lord Jesus in judgment, they will cry to the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Because to be judged by Jesus is the most profoundly terrifying and awesome experience That any of us will ever know. And so on one hand I can tell you that there are mercies and riches at God's right hand in Jesus. That are glorious and lovely and wonderful. And just beyond what we can really imagine and comprehend. God is good. And he is good to his people. But if your choice is to reject him in the same way that the prophets of Baal rejected Yahweh and were implicit in the murder of his servants. Recognize this. A judgment is coming. It is an awful, terrible judgment. And nobody in their right mind wants to take the judgment of God for sin and rebellion on themselves. Jesus has stepped forward to take that for all who trust him. And so I plead with you, turn to Jesus. Ask him to bear the punishment for your rebellion and sin so that you don't suffer a judgment along the lines of these prophets of Baal. Praise God there's mercy. And you tonight have heard the truth of God's word. If you choose no mercy, the choice is yours. May God have mercy on our souls.